I haven't spoken to a lot of CEOs and presidents of skilled nursing facilities and assisted living facilities that would attribute 30% of their occupancy and lead generation to Facebook ads. Today's conversation with Troy Bell was insightful, out of box thinking for owner who has grown from zero facilities up to nine, opened a campus during COVID in order to fill, to lease up his campus, he turned to Facebook ads, out of state Facebook ads in California, Oregon, Washington, Texas, to fill up his facility in Idaho. I hope you find this chat about marketing and business development and Facebook ads with Troy Bell as interesting as I did. This episode was brought to you by Experience.Care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit experience.care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today. Hello, and welcome back to LTC Heroes. I'm your host, Peter Murphy-Lewis. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We have a great episode in store for you. Today, I'm joined by Troy Bell. Troy is the CEO and president of Tana Bell and has developed some fantastic ways of marketing for their facility. And I can't wait to talk about his marketing endeavors. Before talking about the marketing, I should mention that Troy Bell is a licensed nursing home administrator in the states of Montana and Idaho. He's actively involved with purchasing and managing multiple facilities for many years. He's responsible for the day-to-day -day operational management of Tanabel Health Services, Inc. Troy, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Peter. It's an honor and a privilege um, to talk to you about an industry that I love and I'm passionate about. Before we get into what you're doing at Tanabel professionally and also how you got into the field, I want to ask you a couple personal questions that will let the listeners get to know you. So I'd like to start off with, does Troy Bell have any uncommon hobbies that you love and are passionate about? Troy Bell does. I love the sport of CrossFit. I was a former collegiate athlete. And after I finished my career playing college athletics, I still had that drive to compete, got really out of shape and fell in love with the sport of CrossFit and fitness. And so my wife and I actually own a wellness center for our employees at Tanabel here in Pocatello, Idaho. We have a CrossFit gym. I do CrossFit training every morning, most mornings at 5.30 a.m. And then my wife and I also coach CrossFit early in the morning before we go to our day job. So oh, Wow. And do you compete here and there at other um, competitions? Yes, I have competed in the past. I had a knee replacement about a year and a half ago from football injuries. So that kind of ended my competing days. But we still uh, CrossFit almost daily, and uh, we have a lot of members at our gym that compete, and it's a fun hobby of ours. Troy, how does your current self differ from your younger self? I'd have to say that my current self is a lot more patient than my younger self. In the past, as I was growing up, I felt that things should come easy and come quickly. And now at the ripe old age of 43, I realize that nothing comes quickly and nothing comes easily. And it's all about work and earning things versus deserving or getting things. I've learned as I've gotten older that the more you desire something, the more that you work towards it, the outcomes are definitely in your favor and, and you can achieve more. Can you think of a specific moment, maybe transformational moment, where you learned that? Yes. My first job in long-term care, I worked for a company here in Pocatello, and I, I was meeting with the president and CEO at the time. I was an administrator. I'd just been promoted to the management team. I had 
the CEO of the company asked me, Troy, why do you think that I have promoted you to this position? And I said, I don't know, you know, why? And I was looking for this great answer that would make me feel good and sound good. And he said, Troy, I want you to know that I promoted you to this position because you're stupid enough that you'll do anything I ask you to do. At first, that struck me really weird. I didn't know if it was a compliment or he was degrading me. And I immediately thought back to all the things that I had done and all the work that I had done and how I was aspiring to achieve all these things. And I realized that nothing was going to come easy at that point, that I had to be patient, that I had the opportunity at a young age to be on a management team, but I needed to control my aspirations and not have too high of goals and aspirations to move on to the next thing. And having your president and CEO tell you that you're stupid enough to do anything he asked you to do, it kind of humbled me and helped me put myself in my place. And looking back on it today, how do you take that remark? It's one of the best remarks that he could have ever said to me. It motivated me. It made me feel like I was doing what I should be doing because I was a loyal employee to him and I was doing everything he asked me to do. But at the same time, it struck me wrong a little bit that he felt that I was young enough and immature enough that I would do anything he asked me to do. Obviously, I'm an ethical and honest person, so I would never do anything that would question my morals and values. I know that you've already highlighted uh, the importance of CrossFit for you. Outside of that, who is Troy Bell outside of his job? Uh, Troy Bell is a number one fan to his children. I'm a father of four with a beautiful wife, very religious person, love to go to church and, and learn about my creator and my maker. I love to follow my kids around and support them in all their activities from football to soccer to track. And that's where I say I'm the number one fan of my kids because that's what my wife and I spend our time doing is supporting our kids in their activities. Great. A couple questions getting into long-term care now. If you could change anything in long-term care industry with a snap of a finger, what would it be, Troy? Probably the same answer most people in long-term care would say would be fix the regulatory process. It's become very burdensome, especially with COVID. We've had more and more regulations almost weekly. It's become very punitive with civil monetary penalties. So if I could snap my fingers, I would adjust and create a, a more fair and balanced survey process and regulatory process. Good answer. What is the best advice you've received in your career? The best advice that I've received in my career is always come from my parents, and that's to always remember who I am and where I came from. Yeah. Um, no matter how much success or failure we have in our careers or in our life, we must remember our values and who we, who we are and what we stand for. And I've been very, very blessed to have some successes and a lot of failures. And through all those, we must remember it's, it's a career and it's a job. It's a means to take care of us and our loved ones and, the, and our families. And so just remembering who we are and why we do what we do. It might be the same, but sometimes it's different. What's the advice, professional advice, you most find yourself giving? That would be our company mission here at Tanabel. We wear it. We got it on our wristbands. Our company mission is to find joy in the journey. And I tell all of our employees, as I was in a facility yesterday, I walk up to one of my CNAs and I said, hey, what joy have you found in your journey today? Right? And she starts laughing and says, oh, well, 
I just had a huge BM that I took care of. I did this, I had a family upset. And it kind of breaks the ice and lets people know, we know how difficult your job is, but we must find joy in whatever journey we're facing in this long-term care industry. And anybody that comes through our doors, they're all facing different journeys, whether it's an employee, a resident, a family member placing a hospice loved one. It's our responsibility to help them find joy no matter what journey they're on. So I, when I was preparing for this interview, I went through your website. And one of the things that I noticed is you don't hide your values nor your mission on your website. They're one of the most predominant tabs. Where did you develop that mission? Enjoy the journey. So about seven or eight years ago, um, we came together as a management team, and I felt like we needed to change what our mission truly was. I'm very passionate about the industry. Our mission at that time was very similar to other healthcare missions that we provide top-notch quality care at an affordable rate, and that our customers are most important, which is all very true in the industry. But I quickly realized that our number one customer at Tanabel was our employees. Because if our employees are empowered, educated, they have what they need, they feel important, the quality care just comes. And when we don't have employees that find joy in the journey or are happy, quality of care seems to suffer. With that, we realize that we are dealing with people in the final stages of their life in most circumstances. And 99.9% .9 of every customer that comes to us doesn't want to be there doesn't want our services. And so we need to make sure that we help them find joy in the journey that they're facing because it's not by choice that they're coming to ask for our services and our help. Um, we're providing services that are essential to their quality of life at the end stages of their life. And we need to help them find joy, although it's not very joyful to place yourself in a long-term care facility. And it's very difficult for employees to work with people who are facing tough decisions in their life and, and placing themselves or loved ones in the long-term care facility. So the phrase join the journey was a quote from a religious leader that I had a lot of confidence in, that I aspire to be like, that I love, that I admire. And he made that quote one time and I ran into it as we were trying to reevaluate our mission. And I felt uh, that it was pertinent to our company. And so we made that our mission. I love it. And it, you keep giving me perfect segues into my next question. The next section or question is, I tend to call mentor me or who's your hero. If you had to mention one person who's mentored you or influenced the way that you deliver care in our industry, who is your long-term care hero? Well, I've, I've had a lot of heroes in my life, but in the long-term care industry, obviously, Jesus Christ always showed us how to treat people. My parents have always showed us how to treat people. So those two are obviously mentors in everything that I do, but it's also correlates to long-term care. But in the long-term care industry in the state of Idaho, the Holloways are, are a very well-known name. Keith and Delta Holloway and their children, Rick and Sherry, they started the Idaho Healthcare Association. They've been in the industry for years and years and years. When I first got in the industry as a, as a young, anxious administrator, they put their arm around me, even though I didn't work for them as a board member of the Idaho Healthcare Association. And even when I became president of the association, they were always super supportive. And I've always tried to operate my facilities and operate as an operator in the state of Idaho to replicate 
what the Holloways did. They were successful for 30 plus years. They're very respected. They know how to do things in the industry. And so they've always been a, a huge role model for me, how to be providers of long-term care. Great. Sounds like I should have the Holloways on the podcast. They're awesome. They're amazing folks. Troy, getting into your into long-term care and how you got into it, was your first job in long-term care or did you start off somewhere else? No, I got a uh, bachelor's degree in healthcare administration. I did an internship at a local regional hospital overseeing the work med program, which was going to hopefully turn into a job. I sat in the corner office and I marketed to companies to provide their work med through the hospital, try to provide safety measures for workers' comp companies, different things like that. And I quickly realized that that was not the vision I had of, of healthcare. I wanted more interaction with patients, families, doctors, and I could see that the acute healthcare setting, I, I wasn't going to get that early on in my career. My wife was a physical therapy assistant for a company in Pocatello, and it was a behavioral long-term care facility. And they had a 16-bed lockdown Gero psych unit. And one of my friends, Randy Vaudry, was the administrator there. And he gave me an opportunity to come and be an assistant administrator and do my administrator and training program. And so I took that opportunity very apprehensively because I was a little nervous and afraid of long-term care. I'd had people in my education tell me, don't waste your talent, don't go into long-term care, be a CEO of acute hospital, that's where it's at, and don't waste your talents. My wife loved long-term care as a physical therapy assistant, so I said, well, I'll try it. I absolutely loved it. The patients there, they'd kick you, they'd grab you, they'd pinch you on the behind, and then they'd punch you five minutes later and then hug you, right? And I felt needed. I felt important. I realized that that's all they had. Family members were so grateful of our services. We got to interact with psychiatrists, doctors on a daily basis, and I completely fell in love with long-term care which is strange because Gerald Psych was my first experience and I absolutely loved it. And later you went on and studied your MBA. My question related to that is, what was a hard skill that was the most difficult for you to learn and get wrap your head around in long-term care? Was it regulations? Was it outcomes? Was it technology? Was it the business model, the complexity of it? What do you think you've grown the most in, in hard skills as CEO of Tenabel? Yeah, that's a great question, Peter, because long-term care is very different from acute care. Acute care is very business-oriented. Long-term care is very personal-oriented. We take care of people at the highest level, and we have to be fiscally responsible. And that's what I love about long-term care. And I quickly learned that as an administrator, you are providing care. You're on the floor. You're firsthand, you know, you're hands-on. And not only are you hands-on with care and with residents and families, but you're also solely responsible for the financial output and production of that facility. And I absolutely love that. The difference between long-term care and, and normal business to me is the hands-on people aspect. I can easily sit down and crunch numbers and put Excel spreadsheets together and all that, but if I do not have that personal touch and if I'm not providing good quality care, there are no numbers to put in Excel spreadsheets. There are no numbers that I can translate into net profits or, or net incomes. And so as I was getting my MBA, I quickly realized that 
there is a more personal aspect of long-term care that you don't learn in business school, right? You learn numbers, you learn how to increase revenue, decrease expenses, but you don't learn that personal touch. And you can only learn that in long-term care if you do it. That's what I love about it. Tanovel, how many facilities do you own and operate? We have nine facilities, and then we also have some ownership in an outpatient therapy rehab clinic and a home health and hospice agency. And when did you acquire or found your first facility? Our first facility we acquired in 2009. We built a 41-bed transitional rehab facility in Pocatello, Idaho. And so you've been in the industry for a couple decades. And, and it might be what I asked you, what would you change about long-term care with the snap of finger, which was regulatory, but maybe not. What would be on your short list of biggest changes and biggest challenges that you've seen when you first started up until today? So one of the things that has always been a struggle for me and something that I've always worked on trying to develop a plan long-term is the perception of long-term care. That has always irritated me. In hospital care, especially during COVID and at all times, everybody looks to the hospitalists, the doctors, the nurses, CNAs, the hospitals and acute care as heroes and all those things. One thing that I quickly learned when I got into long-term care is long-term care is not always held in high regards. People always have bad experiences they talk about and oh, you don't want to be in a nursing home and those dirty, rotten nursing home operators and nursing homes this, nursing homes that. And so when you're recruiting staff, when you're trying to provide top-notch care, you compete with the, I would say, the incorrect image or perception that long-term care is less than in the healthcare industry. And obviously, I completely disagree. I mean, we provide care to the most needed individuals in America. A lot of these individuals be, would be homeless on the street and have nobody, right? It's vital that long-term care heroes and long-term care facilities exist, but we're often looked down upon. And part of that is because of the survey process, the regulatory process in the 70s. There was a lot of abuse that went on in long-term care facilities, and we've never really overcome that image. And that's one thing that I want to change. I want people in the communities and the country and throughout all industries to look at long-term care and think, wow, they do amazing things. Think of the million kind acts and the million things that long-term care facilities do every day that get overlooked because they have one episode of abuse or one employee that went rogue and did something inappropriately, right? There are millions and millions and millions of things that we do right in the long-term care industry every day for the most needed individuals in America, and, and we forget about that. We only talk and think about the few negative things that happen in our industry. And survey kind of points all those things out, and so we dwell on it. And then it hits the public, it hits the newspaper, and then again, we become those dirty, rotten people that take advantage of vulnerable geriatrics, which is not the case. I believe that you're involved at a higher level in many different associations in Idaho and in maybe even in Montana. Are there any initiatives that you've seen that have at least a little bit of success in changing that perception that make you a little bit optimistic? You mentioned it as being one of the biggest challenges in, in your, you know, your two decades of working in long-term care. Have you seen any progress? Do you have any optimism? 
I do, and and yes, I have seen that. I'm not. I have not been involved with the Montana Healthcare Association. I have been on the board of the Idaho Healthcare Association for a period of eight years. I'm not currently. I'm on a couple of committees and an executive committee. I I was the president of the association and the past president and president elect. And so one of the things that Idaho Healthcare Association has done a really good job with is they are using social media to highlight the good things that we do in Idaho in long-term care. Robert Vandermeerwe is the executive, and they've done a really good job on LinkedIn, Facebook, of highlighting facilities and talking about the positive things that go on in long-term care. And it's had an impact. We've also done in Idaho a lot of marketing campaigns to recruit and encourage people to become nurses and CNAs in the long-term care industry because nurses and CNAs often overlook our industry. And so we've made a huge push. We've invested finances, uh, association member fees and dues into making videos, advertisements. We've run commercials, all those different things. And then at a higher level, the American Healthcare Association and NCAL a couple of years ago had a hashtag why I care campaign and where they highlight individuals and they allow them to you know, why they care, why they chose this industry. And it was a huge, impactful, I think, marketing campaign. Our business, we we still have our marketer many times that is reposting that hashtag why I care. And we continually ask our employees, we interview them, we, we put them on our social media and we ask them, why do you care? Why do you do what you do? Because the general public doesn't understand what we do in a lot of circumstances. They don't understand how difficult it is. And so we want to educate them. And the best way to educate them is by telling our good stories. And I think the industry is getting better and better as a whole in telling our good stories so that they overpower the few negative stories that come out in our industry. I noticed that you're, you personally are particularly active in LinkedIn, much more so than the average CEO in our industry. And, and you're quite young, so that might explain it. But I'm wondering if you do this intuitively if you see your role as CEO in helping the industry and change the perception? Does it help you in terms of marketing and referrals? Why is it that you dedicate 10 minutes or 20 minutes a day to promote the industry and your peers and even your competition in some instances? Contrary to what a lot of people think, I'm not a huge social media guy. If you look at my Facebook page or LinkedIn, you'll see that I very rarely have my own posts, but I share posts that pertain to my industry and to my facilities. The main reason I'm on Facebook is so that I can have business accounts to promote long-term care and to promote my facilities. I personally don't post a lot. I'm more of a personal person that way. But on LinkedIn, I have a lot of industry friends and I love to share what they're doing. You know, the other day, Mark Maxfield, who is a good friend of mine in the industry, had some great, great posts about employees that have reached certain benchmarks and what they're doing at the cottages. And I shared that as fast as I could. Robert Vandermeer just recently posted about our convention coming up. And I shared, I shared because I want people to know about our industry and, and what we really do and how we take care of people and how we fill a niche and a void that that America is blessed to have that many countries don't have. I've had a chance to go to other countries. Long-term care doesn't exist in a lot of countries. We're very, very blessed that we can get assistance for loved ones. 
we can call upon facilities and Medicaid and Medicare to help us take care of our loved ones. And so I want people to know, number one, how blessed we are to have that long-term care industry, and we don't ever want to see it go away. But number two, I want people to see all the good that's going on for American geriatrics. And the best way I can do that is to share all the good stories. There's too much negativity on social media for me. And so I want to tell our story about all the great things that are going on in long-term care. From a kind of a business question before we get into marketing, and that's one of the main main things that I want to talk to you about and what you're doing at Tanabel. But from the business point of view, you've grown really quickly in the last 13 years from your first facility up to nine. And we'll get into those challenges of opening a campus during COVID. But when you started off, did you know that you would eventually found your first facility? Do you have a business plan? Are you an extremely structured business owner who's thinking 10 years out and 20 years out? Are you a little bit more intuitive and a little bit more organic? And, and when the opportunities arrive, you're, you make decisions quickly. You talk to your wife, you talk to your leadership. Can you explain to me about how, what your roadmap looks like you know, even 12 years ago? Yes. When I first got in the industry, I, I had no aspirations of owning my own facilities. I was content being an administrator, just being a, a huge advocate of the industry and making a, a fair and decent living. As I got further and further along in the industry, by luck, the business that I, the company that I was working with started divesting facilities, started going a different direction. And so I became more and more interested in how that process worked. And as I did that, I had the opportunity to manage from 2004 to 2008. I had an opportunity to establish a couple management contracts for a facility, one facility in Santa Barbara, California, and one facility in Tigard, Oregon, the Portland area, where I signed a management contract and I took over two troubled facilities from a prior owner just to try to see if I gave them a lot of love and attention, if I could turn those facilities around. And as we did that, um, I realized that we could turn trouble facilities around if we gave them the attention and the expertise that they needed. And from 2004 to 2008, I had the opportunity to do that. And that's when I realized, hey, I want to start my own company. There are a lot of great things that the long-term care industry offers, but there's a lot of old ways in long-term care that I think we need to change, right? One thing that I heard all the time when I first started was, oh, why do we do it this way? And I would hear all the time, oh, we've always done it that way. And in long-term care, I know many people have heard that same phrase, and I, I just didn't accept that. I wanted something different. And so after I managed those facilities for those four years, I realized that I wanted to start creating facilities that were different from the long-term care that we've had the last 20 years. I wanted private rooms. I wanted better facilities with better PTAC and HVAC units so that they smelled better. I wanted better mill service. I wanted to give these residents more. And so that's kind of where it all started. And after we were able to secure financing and, and work with the bank and get our first facility going, I had no idea that we could get to nine facilities. But one thing that we've been very, very blessed with is as we have had good reputations with the buildings that we've started, we've had opportunities to go in and consult and help troubled facilities or facilities that may need some extra consulting. And as we've done that, we've gone in, done some consulting for six months to a year. Owners and operators have said, hey, we want you to take over this building. 
And so that's kind of naturally been our growth is that we go in and we consult, we help people. And then because we do that, we get opportunities to grow our own company and take over facilities or take trouble facilities off the hands of operators that either don't want to do it anymore or didn't have the expertise and just jumped into long-term care and decided, well, this is a little more than we thought it was. So that's kind of how our growth pattern has gone. And as we've done that, we've been able to secure more financing and build more of our own campuses as well. So we've been extremely blessed and been given opportunities to help other operators, which in turn has helped our growth. Before we move into the successes, do you have any missteps or failures that you feel comfortable sharing? Obviously, you know, I don't want to embarrass your team or your staff or anything. Is there anything that you look back and be like, man, if I could have taught myself this and save some mistakes, even whether it be my competition and peers in the industry, I would do this differently? Absolutely. If I talked about all my failures, we'd take up the whole, the whole podcast, <laughs> but that's how we learn, right? In life and in the industry. But I've taken on some facilities that have been heavy Medicaid facilities with some extreme survey issues. And while we've been able to turn those facilities around, that also requires more of a time commitment and more of a financial commitment to us. And sometimes when you focus on a problem for so long and put so many resources to that one problem, you forget to keep your eye on the ball and keep everything else that you have maintained. And so in my career, you know, one of the biggest mistakes that we've made is that we've sometimes focused on problems too intently and spent too much time and resources on problems versus maintenance of everything that we have. You have to keep everything into perspective. And sometimes you just can't drop everything and go fix a problem. Sometimes you just have to let that problem go away or give that problem away. Some problems aren't fixable or aren't worth the resources to fix, you need to let someone else have the opportunity that has more resources and is better qualified to fix those things. Sometimes I think that we can fix anything. We can do anything as long as we put the resources and time into it. But sometimes there's a balance and you have to understand that spending too much time and resources on one thing does not benefit the whole. And I have, you know, 500 plus employees and 500 plus and families plus families that expect me and my management team to make good decisions on their behalf. Mm-hmm. And if I make bad decisions, all those families suffer. So it's a heavy burden. So there's, there's a time to put the energy and resources in, and then there's a time to focus on the things that are working and to let certain things go. A lot of times in my young career, I, I wasted time going after things that probably were not attainable. I have some regrets with that. It sounds like you have a specific example in mind and I, you don't need to share the details, but what I'm interested in understanding is what was the first kind of bigger component of care or variable in your business where you started to realize the overattention to one problem made this go wrong? Did you notice it in the bottom line and census or in outcomes or a survey or a rating or even something cultural? This episode was brought to you by Experience.Care. Experience Care is a provider of world-class EHRs that alleviate the pain of disorganization in your facility. Its dashboard is designed to minimize confusion and maximize productivity. Experience Care is designed for CEOs that care about their CNAs and their residents alike. 
Visit experience.care to learn more about the best EHR in the market. I mean, I just with the first opportunity I had in long-term care, there's a huge need for geropsych beds for behavioral units in, in all of America, but especially in Idaho. But the one thing that I quickly realized is that because of limited resources and because of the regulatory process, you're limited on how much of that geriatric psych service you can really offer, right? With Medicaid reimbursement, Medicare reimbursement, there's only so much you can do to provide one-on-one care, things like that. And while there's a need and and I, I was passionate about it, I quickly realized that I couldn't be the solution for the behaviors in the state of Idaho. As an association, as an industry leader, we wanted to provide solutions like where can we put these high behavior geriatrics? There's no place for them to go. And as we tried to find solutions, tried to find solutions, I realized that we couldn't waste any more resources that we had to let the state come up with a solution. Because in the private sector, we, we had no solution because of reimbursement, staffing, and all the other, you know, survey, all those determining factors. And so we have to turn it over to the state hospitals. We have to turn that part of the industry over, which is hard for me because I want to provide a solution to every Idaho geriatric. But if the reimbursement and the regulatory process makes it almost impossible, I can't do it. And I wish that I could. I have a sense, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so please correct me if I'm wrong. I have a sense with the change, the changing industry or the changing customer behavior and how residents and residents' families now do research. The importance of marketing in senior living is growing in importance. Are there any elements to marketing that maybe 20 years ago you didn't really have to pay attention to because the way the referral system was set up, the way the internet was, that today you do pay attention to as CEO? Absolutely. 20 years ago, it was what doctor or which hospital is going to refer to you, right? Now it's which agency, a place for mom, caring angels. How do I get those contracts? Oh, and by the way, ACOs, like how can I become a partner to the hospital now? Because they're limiting partners. So I've got to get on their provider list. I got to become a preferred provider. How do I do that? And it's all about relationships and quality outcomes. All these different things are the things that we have to do to market. And then you throw in social media on top of that. In the assisted living environment, we use social media and normal business marketing just like anyone anyone else would because it's heavy private pay, tons of competition. And so we have to use all aspects of marketing. Um, while in the SNF environment, we still you know, worry you know, where the hospitals are sending people and what relationship we have and how can we get those referrals, we still have to do social media marketing. We still have to appeal to family members and show all the good that we do through social media, billboards, all those things, because everyone else is, right? It's highly competitive, especially after COVID, census rates are low. People are trying to dig out of the the low census that uh, COVID caused. And so it's very cutthroat. People are trying to fill beds and people are using all avenues of marketing from cold calling to agencies, to social media, to billboards, you name it. Everybody's trying to fill beds right now. 
I know that you hire well in the marketing area, and we'll get into some of those initiatives that you've done. Has your budget increased or have you allocated a percentage of your budget to a different place than you would have? Or do you pay more attention to it today yourself than you did even five years ago? How has it changed at the granular level inside of your company? It's absolutely changed. In the past, we had a budget of, okay, yeah, drop off some coffee mugs to the discharge planners. Take them some drinks as long as it's legal and and appropriate, right? And that was our marketing budget. Right now, it's how much are we willing to spend on Facebook? How many interactions are we willing to pay for on Instagram and Facebook? How many ads are we willing to sponsor? Where we went from a budget of almost zero, now we contemplate, you know, will we pay $3,000 a month for a billboard? Absolutely. How many $400 ads are we going to put on Facebook this month to try to fill our five empty beds? Right. So we're continually spending more money marketing. Whereas five years ago, we didn't use Facebook. We didn't use Instagram. We hardly even use agencies. And now those are commonplace in our industry, whereas we never used them five years ago. How involved are you in marketing and what elements of marketing? So we have a a full-time marketing director here at Tanabelle. Her name is Morgan. I work three offices down from her. She communicates with me almost daily as to what she's doing. Like, can I run this ad? Hey, what if we run these ads in California to try to fill these beds in Idaho? And she throws all these amazing ideas at me. She's extremely talented. And I shake my head and just go, wow, that's a great idea. Why have I never thought of that, right? And so we communicate often. Marketing has become one of our uh, number one discussed items in our office as a management team is how are we going to market to staff and how are we going to market to fill beds? Those are our two crises right now in long-term care. And so that's what we talk about consistently. We just signed a contract with an agency that's supposed to help us market for more staff, right? There's agencies out there. We're signing contracts. We're posting more ads. It's completely different than it was five years ago. And it's market-based. We're marketing more than we ever have. And I don't see that ever changing. From a higher level, even before you get into the channels, tactics, and strategies, what are your true differentiators? If I looked at your 10 closest competitors within 20 miles of you or 30 miles of you, and you had to explain to me quickly, this is where we stand out. How would you explain that to me? And then I'm going to ask you, how would you show it to me? So our facilities, I believe, are unique. All but one of our buildings are are 100% private rooms. Private rooms, private bathrooms, which a lot of our competitors, a lot of older buildings do not offer, right? That's one of the things that I wanted to change in in long-term care is dignity. I wanted our residents to have more dignity. When I've been in the hospital, I don't want to share a bathroom. I don't want to share a room. And so that's one thing that I can visually show you is that most of our buildings are new. They're less than 10 years old. Not all, but most of them are as a company whole. They have private bathrooms, private showers. They allow the resident and family members to have privacy and dignity. That's a huge marketing tool for us. And that's one thing that we push is, is are those things. Robust activities program. That's a big thing for me. That's a marketing tool for us because nobody wants to place a loved one, nor do I want to be in a facility where I sit in my room all day. Now, COVID has complicated that, right? Mm-hmm. Social distancing and all that. So we've had to be very, very creative. But we try to show people, look, this is our activities calendar. This is why we're different. We do more. We invest more money into our activities program. 
We have more than one activities director. We have a robust staff. All those things matter to families right now. Technology. We say that our buildings have the the best and and highest level technology you can get in long-term care. You want free Wi-Fi? Everyone in the building's got it, from resident to family members. We've invested in uh, iPad Pros. You know, we can do telehealth medicine. We can do FaceTime with families. We can lend them to residents to watch Netflix, whatever it may be, right? The days of standard cable services, no, residents want the Roku sticks. They want Netflix. They want all those things. And so technology has become a huge marketing tool for us. Needless to say, you know, we, we, we put all these things on social media, Facebook, Instagram, to show how we're different than other people. But a lot of a lot of long-term care facilities are doing the same thing we are. So it's extremely competitive. We try to just tell our story better than our competitor, which is hard to do because everyone's really good at it now. You have a unique experience to share in that you opened a campus or a facility right at the beginning, right in the middle of COVID. Is that correct? Can you tell me a little bit about how that happened? Yeah. So we, we built a brand new campus in Meridian, Idaho just outside of Boise, is one of the fastest, Meridian's one of the fastest growing communities in the country, right during COVID. And obviously we couldn't do tours, we couldn't do a lot of things. It really put a, a real hit on our lease up that we, our, our projected lease up. So one of the things that our, more, uh, our marketing director came up with is as we were doing Facebook ads was to widen our parameters. So as many people know throughout the country, there are a lot of people moving to Idaho from California, Texas, just from all over the country, right? And so we kept seeing people contact us from California and other you know, southern states saying, hey, what are your rates? I'm moving to Boise and I'm thinking about moving my mom or dad with me. And so we would get back to them and say, yeah, our private pay rate for assisted living is $4,200. Right. And they'd immediately uh, direct message us back and say, I'm paying 14,000 in California. I'm paying 11,000. And so we started thinking, well, with all these people moving to Idaho from California, why don't we encourage them to bring their loved ones? It'll save them money. They have a brand new private pay facility with private bathroom and beautiful, spacious rooms and restaurant style dining and everything they're getting in California, maybe even better for a fraction of the cost. So on our Facebook ads, as we were trying to lease up, my marketing director came to me and said, hey, let's expand our parameters so that our Facebook ad shows to people in California and other neighboring states where we know they're moving to Idaho. So if they type in long-term care anywhere in the web browser, when they open up Facebook or whatever, our ad will pop up, they'll click on it, and they'll realize, oh my heavens, that's in Idaho, but they wanna come to Idaho anyways. And they're gonna save a bunch of money we have admitted probably in the last two to three months, 10 to 15 residents from California into our Meridian facility just by talking to the California people through social media, spreading the word. And even before people move to the Meridian area, some of them are moving their loved one first to our facility in preparation to move and either retire in Idaho or do whatever they want to do in Idaho. And then they can have their loved one close. They save money. They feel good about it. And we come up with two solutions for one problem. This is an amazing story. And I'm sure this is happening in other places organically. I haven't spoken to anyone who is having as much success as you all. 
did you have success from day one when you opened up the parameters or did you maybe go through 500 a thousand dollars making it too broad going after all of california and you realized you have to go after urban areas can you speak to any trial and error that you had at the beginning yeah i mean obviously at first it didn't it didn't just like click and we didn't all of a sudden get all these inquiries it kind of started happening by accident you know the first person that came in that said they were from california we kind of scratched our head and thought why are these people moving to idaho well we keep hearing more and more about it how much they love idaho then we start hearing about how much less it our services are compared to california and so then we go well let's tell our story right in idaho you can bring your loved one here and you can get as good a care maybe better care in a newer facility for a fraction of the price come to idaho right instead of us trying to hide idaho they're going to come regardless let's invite them and welcome them we started accepting our first you know couple of residents from california it kind of started by word of mouth hey there's this new building in idaho that's not leasing up very quickly you better get a room first because it's going to fill up and so that's kind of how it started and then we started in expanding our our facebook ads and different things like that naturally and you get one referral trickle in right or a place for mom calls us and says hey we got a referral from california because they saw your ad and then you go hmm and so you just expand the parameters to the los angeles area or the places that are very very overpopulated as people say and all of a sudden you start getting more inquiries because those are the people that are looking to lower their tax rate maybe sell a home settle down in a small community in idaho and then it just naturally happens because your parameters are reaching out to those people that are potentially searching to leave california great troy I do a lot of Facebook ads in my marketing career, and there's different ways to approach Facebook, and you can get different traction different ways. One of them that you've spoken to, obviously, is the price point, right? You're, you're sometimes half the price, if not more. That's obviously going to work quickly. But at some point, you start to spend more and more and more, and your return on investment decreases. It still might be worth it for the, for the short term, but at some point, you kind of find the perfect spot. Could you speak to where, if you've already found the sweet spot and you, you've maxed it out, or if you're still growing and still discovering new ways, and then kind of in relation to that, you can adjust your ads not to be just about the price point. There, there might be something about attracting people because my stereotype of Idaho is you guys are really nice. And that might not be the stereotype of Southeast Florida or New York or Dallas, Texas. Are there any other parts of the storyline other than price that you have worked and kind of tailored into your Facebook marketing? Yes. Um, when we first started, actually, we didn't talk a whole lot about price. It was images that would spark, you know, recollection and thoughts about their relationship with mom and dad, you know, some old school TV images type thing that would catch their eye when they first opened up Facebook and like, what is this? And then it talks about, hey, I, mom has taken care of me my whole life, and now it's my chance to talk to mom. So it was more of a personal touch first when we started. And then we realized when people started contacting us that the price point was so much different that we could utilize price point as well. But I always feel like in long-term care, the personal touch and the emotional touch is always the most effective because whether it comes to money or not, the hardest part about placing someone is placing a loved one 
when you don't want to or you feel like you can't take care of them. And so we want them to feel like, hey, these people understand that and they're going to take real good care of mom. Oh, and by the way, the great thing about it is they're a lot less too and she gets a private room. And so we wanted more of a personal touch and then we feel that that works the best. And then once you start conversing with them, the price point sells them in the final aspect of it. But you can spend way too much money on Facebook. You can spend not enough. There is that price point. There is that happy medium, Peter, that you got to kind of balance. And the way that we kind of do it is, is if we dip below 90%, we spend more money. If we stay at that 90% occupancy or higher, we'll maybe spend $400 a month marketing on Facebook. If we dip down, we, we increase it to 1,000. If we dip lower, we increase it to 1,500. So it's based upon occupancy that kind of stirs our budget and, and determines what we spend. I know that I'm really um, hounding you on Facebook ads questions, but the reason I do is because I think that there are a lot of owners out there who aren't thinking outside of the box, aren't thinking out, outside of their county, maybe not even outside of their city. If there's a listener right now, you know, in, in Kansas City, Kansas, or in Omaha, Nebraska, who's hearing this and says, wow, that's interesting. What percentage of your success in such a challenging year with COVID would you give a tribute to Facebook ads? And I know your reputation is critical. I know that your rating is going to be critical, your outcomes. People look at those nowadays outside of the obvious things that everyone else looks at. You know, would you put Facebook on your top five list of success in the last 18 months? Absolutely. Reputation's number one, right? And the product you're offering is number two. But for our Meridian campus, Facebook has helped us lease that building up significantly faster than we could have in the COVID era. I mean, honestly, like we relied on social media and Facebook marketing more than we ever have for that particular campus because honestly, it was our only option. Like we couldn't, when we opened up our assisted living there, we couldn't even have an open house because of COVID. And we're planning an open house the end of August, finally. And we've been open for almost eight months because now's the only time we can do it with COVID parameters and different things. So we just had, we were forced to think outside the box, Peter, which was hard for us because you don't want to do that. You always want to work with, this has always worked in the past, but Facebook has probably contributed to, I would say close to, 30 to 35% of our admits in that particular facility wow. alone. I remember the first 10 minutes when you and I had a chat and you mentioned this and I was just blown away. And I said, we have to highlight this because this could help so many struggling cities, even rural areas that might not even know how to attract the attention of these, the city dwellers who are ready to leave and look for something more friendly, more open space, private bathrooms. So thank you. I almost promised Troy that this is my last Facebook as question. Have your peers and friends in the industry reached out to you and asked you for, for help and advice? No. And part of it is because I haven't been spoken freely about it other than to you. I don't think it's a secret. I think a lot of people don't see the importance of it. I can say that even before we saw our Facebook ads being successful with people outside of the area, one thing that I quickly realized, and I know this is kind of a, a double-edged sword because you know, you always, it's hard to pay agencies to place loved ones, right? Because it costs you a lot of money, right? Mm -hmm. Agencies, you know, place for mom, different things like that. But what we noticed is when we first started placing Facebook ads just in the Boise area, that it stemmed 
people and potential customers that when they use those agencies, they asked about us first. Hey, I saw this brand new facility called Meridian Meadows came up on Facebook. Do you represent them? Yeah, we represent them too. Yeah, we can get you in there, right? And so not only did it help us with people outside the area, but that Facebook ad, believe it or not, just because they see it and they're searching in their search engine, assisted living, every time they opened up Facebook, our ad popped up. Mm-hmm. And so when they did use an agency, they asked for us. The agency didn't even have to give us as an option. They asked for us. And so I know it works. And so it's scary for me to talk about it because I really don't want my competitors to do it. But you know what? That It's going to happen regardless. I have been surprisingly shocked at how much it has helped us. I'm sure you've seen Morgan struggle with it. The execution is sometimes harder than the planning. So even if you're sharing it with your competition, it, it takes three to six months of sometimes throwing, you know, $3,000 at the wall before you, you figure it out. So one, thanks for sharing it here. Two, thanks for making the industry better, even sharing it with your competition. I am interested in transitioning into your passion for the topic of staffing and staffing related to recruitment, related to retention. I think you've mentioned that the state of Idaho has helped you in this, and you guys have been speaking at it at an ownership level. Can you talk a little bit about what Idaho has been facing in terms of a staffing issue, especially during COVID, and where you see light at the end of the tunnel of maybe some solutions for what you all are doing there? Staffing, especially the last two months, has become a, a crisis in Idaho. We're very grateful to the Department of Labor and the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare, and they've given us waivers. So in skilled nursing, they've allowed us to allow nursing assistants to work in skilled nursing longer than the 120 days before they get their CNA certification to get people introduced into the industry and different things. They've also done some waivers on LPNs and RNs that are in school, allowing us to utilize them, which has been extremely helpful. And we're very, very grateful. When those waivers go away, you know, obviously that, that'll be a huge hit on, on our industry. And right now with Idaho being one of the fastest growing states, there are a lot of jobs in Idaho. Just down the road from our, one of our facilities in Boise, McDonald's is offering $14 an hour immediately, and uh, they can't even find people. We did a job fair in our Boise market earlier this week, and we had one person show up to it, and we marketed it very heavily. It's a crisis. It's very concerning. I know a lot of facilities in the state have stopped admitting because they do not have enough staff to continue to take care of people. Where this ends, I'm not quite sure, but there are some you know, good signs. Number one, we still have the waivers in place, which is great. Number two, Idaho's reimbursement is very, very competitive. And so we see an increase in, in wages going up which I, it's hard as a provider because we run on such small margins, but it's good to see CNAs and nurses get paid what they're worth. What I love about the industry is I love my people. I love my employees. I tell them that all the time. Sometimes it makes them uncomfortable, but when I go into buildings, I I say right to them, I love you guys. Without you, we have nothing. CNAs, my first job, I've been a CNA. It's hard. Thank you so much, right? We need you guys. Our residents rely on you. They have nobody else but you. And so I love trying to do anything and everything I can to take care of them. We're doing everything from sign-on bonuses at all level, recruiting bonuses. You bring on a friend, 
you get $500. We're, we're doing anything and everything we possibly can. Also, the state of Idaho, the governor, Governor Little, he has, as of July 19th, the added um, unemployment benefits from the federal government will stop. Idaho's unemployment is higher than it should be with the amount of job openings we have. So, so I know it's a controversial thing in politics, but we're hoping that um, with less unemployment benefits that more people will enter the job market, but that's speculative. But there's a lot of good things happening. We have a lot of support from the Department of Labor and the Department of Health and Welfare that we're relying on, but there is still a long ways to go. I don't know when it ends, especially in, uh, in Idaho, but we're hopeful and we're just going to try to continue to treat people the best we can to keep them in the industry. Because I think right now, retention is the key for our industry. We have to retain people and keep them in the industry so that they don't leave. Because once they leave, they may never come back. Troy, we've, we've talked a lot about your entrance into the market, into long-term care industry, your business development, marketing, and staffing. Is there any topic that we haven't talked about that you want to highlight before we sign off? No, just feel extremely blessed to be a part of the industry. It is one of the, I think, one of the most valuable industries in America because I love geriatric. When you hear the story that these people can tell, the stories that these people have and the stories that they tell you from World War II vets to you name it, it's just an honor and a privilege to take care of American geriatrics. I have one more question before I ask where listeners can find you online. And we don't have to mention the professor's name who told you not to go into long-term care. You probably think about it enough. Have you ever told him how much you love long-term care and shared that story with him? He knows how much I long, love long-term care. He often laughs about it. Um, uh, but I still remember that day where he said to me, don't waste your talent, Troy. Don't go into long-term care. I was the only male in the healthcare administration program at the time, too. I was surrounded by these amazing women. He's like, hey, don't waste your talent. You're the only male here. Go get a job in, at a hospital. But he's a good man. He's, a, he's been a mentor of mine, and I really appreciate all he did for me while I was at Idaho State University. But that is, that is a true and funny story. Either he discovered that you're stubborn and did our industry a great favor, or he challenged you so much, you just threw yourself in completely. So uh, whoever that professor is, thank you for pushing Troy Bell into the industry. Troy, where can listeners find you online if they want to reach out and hear more about your story in Idaho or talk about staffing or learn from your work with Facebook ads? Yeah, so I'm on social media, Troy Bell on Facebook, pretty common name. So you have to sift through the folks there. I'm also on LinkedIn as well. Most of my professional interaction is on LinkedIn. So look, at, look for me there. We'll share your link in the show notes, Troy. Thank you so much for joining us on LTC Heroes. It was uh, an honor and I look forward to staying in contact with you in the future. Thank you, Peter. And thank you for all that you do for the industry. And thank you for all the providers that battle every day and, and also all the industry people that support us. So thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Visit ltcheroes.com to join our Facebook group for nurses and our exclusive LinkedIn group for LTC owners. Visit ltcheroes.com for your exclusive access today. This episode was brought to you by Experience.Care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit experience.care forward slash guaranteed.
to get your free profitability consultation today.